Hi, my name is Marcia Chatlin. I'm a professor of history at Georgetown University, but more importantly, I'm the host of Office Hours, a podcast. This is an opportunity to get a window into my world where I talk to students about the things that are most important to them. So please join us for Office Hours for the things we don't talk about in class. Well, Marcia. Hi, Alex. Well, Goodness gracious, I have just missed you dreadfully. I know. Um, All I am is a tweet about where I'm traveling to next. An ephemeral tweet. An ephemeral tweet. I don't even have Twitter, but I look at Twitter just so I can see what you're posting, <laughs> so I can feel close to you. Thank you. I. What a sweetheart you are. So, I have been on the road. Where? Well, um, I have just been talking at different campuses. So, the past few weeks have been super busy. I actually returned to my alma mater, the University of Missouri. What was that like? It was amazing. It for, it always feels weird because like when I'm on the campus, I'm like, oh, I'm 17 again and have no clue what I'm doing. <laughs> but I am not 17. I am a grown up. I'm a professor, which feels very weird. You're a doctor. I'm Dr. Chatlin now instead of Marsha, the weirdo who lives in Hatch Hall. But um, <laughs> I, I actually was working with a group of faculty members in a department that wanted to just really process what happened last semester on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who may have missed it, um, the University of Missouri had a rough fall. Um, A group of students um, were really concerned about the racial climate on campus. Students were victims of racial assaults, and there was no response from the administration, and so they took action. So they disrupted the homecoming parade, and for those of you who are not from the Midwest and cannot imagine what a, like, a Midwestern football school homecoming is like, it is a huge deal to disrupt the homecoming parade. There's, you know, there's over 100,000 people on campus that day, and there was a confrontation between the university system president and the protesters, and they called themselves Concerned Student 1950 um, in recognition of the first African-American student to go to the University of Missouri, and the president resigned and the chancellor resigned, and there was the inclusion of the football team in this protest. I mean, it was unlike anything we've really seen in a really long time. And so my colleagues, other faculty members, want to know what to do, like how you move forward. And so I talked to them about how you deal with the past, how you deal with the fact that even though they're a team, everyone had a different relationship to the protest and different feelings about the protest. And how do you show students that you support them when they're making decisions you agree with, when they make decisions you don't agree with. So it was it was really like moving. Um, and I'm really glad that I was actually um, able to be part of that. Where else have I been? I went to DePaul in my hometown of Chicago. I got to see my sister, which was fantastic. And I talked to, again, a group of students who are really concerned about social justice. There are a lot of concerns about the Chicago Police Department right now. There's concerns about the public schools. And we just had a really good conversation about what does it mean to be in college and be an activist. And then we, um, where else did I go? I was somewhere else, like, oh, I was at the University of Pittsburgh, where I participated in their Year of the Humanities, which is kind of awesome, because the humanities really struggle sometimes. I (laughs) I think people sometimes, like, you know, there's a sense, even like our president, who I appreciate often, you know, is making jokes about art history majors, and then there's such like a crackdown on professors not teaching, but it was actual actually a celebration of what the humanities can do and so I talked about um, hashtag Ferguson syllabus which I started last year to talk about the crisis in Ferguson Missouri and amazing audience 
Um, every time I travel to a different campus, I love colleges. Yeah. And no, you don't know how much I love colleges. How much do you love them? <laughs> and why? Of all the things. Um, because I love the energy. I love the fact that anything can happen. Yeah. Um, I actually got married on a college campus. You did? Little known fact. <laughs> I got married on the campus of the University of Southern California. My husband's Ew. alma mater and my father's, uh, uh, my father-in-law's alma mater. Yeah, I'm um, actually. Yeah, we got we just like showed up on campus and got married. There was like five of us there. That's awesome. It was it was it was totes alt as you kids That's would so say. Alt. Um, I like bought my flowers at Whole Foods on the way. And <laughs> no, you did. We not. got married. Yeah, no, we did. That's but we got married on a college campus. I mean. And every time my husband and I go on vacation, yeah. we try to find a campus to go to. And we'll, like, buy t-shirts in the bookstore. It's really <laughs> embarrassing. But I just, I love it because there's some things that are constant. Mm-hmm. The students and the faculty, there's the leadership and there's the staff. But then every school has its own culture. And as someone who gets to travel to campuses, I love, like, trying to get right into their business <laughs> immediately. I read the student paper and, like, always at my talks, I'm like, okay, guys, what's happening on campus? Like, what are people talking about? What's the buzz about? And you see the complexities. Yeah. I go to so many campuses. <laughs> so, wow, there's so much there. What, what as a symbol do you think it represents to you, like, the university? I think for me, I just, you know, I, it's weird. We were going to, we talked on the podcast with um, a student who's had this experience, but I was a like good student, right? I was fine. Um, and I did activities and I was fine in high school. And like, I liked stuff. I was, I was a perfectly fine teenager, but I think college, I was like, oh, I could actually be a leader. I didn't think, I didn't really think of myself in that way. I think I, there were things I was good at and interested in, in, but college was the place where I was like, oh, I can be effective. Like I can organize people or like I can get things done. I got involved a little bit in student activism when I was at Missouri and I had a chance to write about it for the Chronicle of Higher Ed. We'll put Which it up. great. You should read it, everyone. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. Please do it. But do we'll, it. We'll put it up in the homework section, but like... This was the, like, space where I'm like, oh, this is what, like, becoming a person feels like. And I'm so cognizant of it as it was happening because I had so many great friends and so many great mentors that, you know, like, I was sold on it. And I was really lucky at a young age I kind of found what I wanted to do. Very few people find out, like, their thing in their 20s. But I think because it was so tied to the experience of being in college. Oh my gosh, I love colleges. Yeah. When did you feel it? Would you say like your freshman year? I'm I'm curious because I I can relate to your sentiments. Um, when did I realize like I think that probably like by my sophomore year, I'd gotten very active in um a group called Inclusion Now that was about um adding sexual orientation in the non discrimination policy. And this was like nineteen ninety eight. And that, do you know what I mean? Like, and this is like, um, Ellen had come out on TV like two years earlier and, uh, Matthew Shepard was killed at the University of Wyoming. And so this was like the moment, this was the conversation. Yeah. And we were successful in getting an LGBTQ center on campus in central Missouri in like 98 and a full-time staff position. And, um, my friend had started this project where we documented all the graffiti on campus because before people were awful trolls on the internet, they like <laughs> wrote graffiti and there was so much graffiti on campus, like hateful, racist, sexist, homophobic stuff. And we documented every single piece of it and we published it 
in this thing called the hate report and it took on a life of its own and so it was like the report and then like someone was like you should call it an institute i was like fine so it was the institute and i was like the executive director and we would like send the report out across the state and let people know what was happening i was doing like you know like diversity trainings when I was like 19 or 20, I guess a lot of people trusted me that I knew what I was doing. And so I kind of was like, I should know what I was doing. Yeah. You know, it's like this weird effect it has. But I just felt like I was, this is the place where I was treated like a person. Like yeah. I was an individual and I had gifts and people wanted to cultivate those gifts instead of like, oh, you're just one of many, like, please shut up and sit down. And it breaks my heart when students feel that way. And I think maybe this is why I get so into like what I do because that experience was like everything I kind of needed. Yeah. To you know be who what I mean? To who you're supposed to be. Yeah. And I think that so many people don't get that experience in college. They, I mean, they get something out of it, but I, but I had such an unusual college experience that I think that's what kind of shaped my path. Yeah. Well, I hope throughout this series that you can tell us a bit more about how we can cultivate those unusual experiences. Oh, I'm always like the um, expert on things that are unusual. <laughs> getting, getting a little weird. <laughs> getting a little weird. <laughs> Today on the podcast, I speak with junior Alexis Campbell about campus politics. Hi, Alexis. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. I wanted to chat with you on the podcast because you're fantastic and oh, not just you. that. But we've had a lot of conversations kind of as this school year has unfolded. And I think that for students who started, you started college in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um you know, your four years are probably going to be known in the history books, right? Mm-hmm. Because you started college at the point where, you know, we've had an African-American president for several years, and you were a college student in um, the midst of the summer of 2014 where we see the expansion of movements like Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. in response to the crisis in Ferguson. You saw campus protests on your own campus. You saw a heightened awareness about police and community relations. And so it's kind of hard to sort out history as it's unfolding in front right. of you. But what have you kind of seen or gleaned as a college student in this particular moment? Interesting. Well, I said a second ago, you know, I'm from California. And so when it came to moving out of the outside of that area and moving to a new place, I've said a lot on this particular topic that I was woken up really to a lot of the things that surround conversations about race. So growing up, I was part of a small community and I always make the joke that at my school there was like a 0.005% African-American population. And that 0.005% was me, my brother, and my sister. (laughs) And so when I was brought into this environment where I was meeting a bunch of different people from different backgrounds who the reverse would be true, where they would be the 95% at their school or things like that, hearing about all of these issues and kind of being woken up Mm -hmm. to the various different stories that people of color have gone through throughout the country, it was definitely a wake-up call for me. And I think that having been the backdrop to things like Ferguson, to the on-campus protests and all of those things, I think it provided really great learning opportunity for me. And so like you said, going forward, these four years that I'm having are probably going to be a huge part of the history books. And so learning about kind of how these movements have taken place in the past and kind of seeing them transform and develop on my own as they're happening now is really interesting. How would you describe then the racial climate of the community you came from? 
Um, hmm, it's interesting. So I'm from Los Angeles, and so obviously there's a large history there with regards to racial politics and things like that. You know, you have Rodney King and all of those things. And so um, the best way, I think, to describe it is that Los Angeles is kind of a huge melting pot of a lot of different cultures, but just like any metropolitan area, there are a lot of little pockets of different ethnic minorities. And so you'll have pockets here and there that have primarily Latino populations or primarily um, African-American populations and things like that. And where I grew up, the population is primarily white and Jewish. Mm -hmm. And so that was the the majority of the people, whereas the African-Americans kind of fell more so into the minority. But then, of course, you had this very large Latino population. And so in a lot of ways, when you would have conversations about race in my community, they were more tailored to the Latino white dynamic as opposed to, not even as opposed to the African-American white dynamic, just African-Americans really didn't come into that conversation because they weren't, while we were part of the community, we weren't a large enough minority Mm -hmm. to really have a voice or be relevant to the conversation that was taking place. This is super interesting because one of the things that you see with Los Angeles is just a critical mass of a loss of black population. Mm -hmm. And um, we can put on Tumblr some extra reading if anyone wants to think about African-Americans in Los Angeles. But this is definitely like not the kind of immediate racial politics and at the same time um when i was uh, you know in junior high when um rodney king was beaten on camera and the police officers responsible were acquitted Mm -hmm. this was kind of the ferguson of my younger years and it's so interesting because i think increasingly the black population in Los Angeles had left, mm-hmm. and so you don't think about it in those terms. And right. so I think as um, a black woman in Los Angeles, there's this kind of strange invisibility, but you're so much tied to this other history. Right, and even still, you know, so I was born after the Rodney King, and I know that when all of these things in Ferguson were transpiring and we were having conversations, you know, my brother, my sister, and my parents, they were going back to that because they were there for that. So they were alive and they could kind of relate to the movement. And so when it came to all of the Black Lives Matter and all of the things that have recently been transpiring, it's interesting to have those cross-generational conversations because my parents... They were there for a similar experience. And so being young now and having a similar movement on which I can understand why my parents would talk about certain things certain ways and why being black in Los Angeles meant a certain thing to them, This all of the things that are happening now are giving me a ground on which I can understand that. How do you talk to your parents about what's happening now? That's a very good question. Um, it's It's interesting because I think that for them... We didn't really start talking about it, I don't think, until my brother got ready to go to college. And your brother's older? My brother's younger. Oh, okay. So my brother is currently a freshman at Yale. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the conversations... Oh, so both of you have been in the middle of quite a bit mm-hmm. this school year. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about why you think your brother going to college um, led your parents to talk more about race openly with you guys. I think it's definitely the young African-American male piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that when it came to the fact that in the midst of all of these protests and you hear about police violence and un-African-American teenagers who were being shot and things like that, my mother was really scared. And I think for her it was, I'm about to send my son 
I mean, across the country, let alone to New Haven, Connecticut. And I'm going to send my son there and I'm going to hope he's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And I think with that, not to say that, you know, my brother is in any way, shape or form prone to having terrible things happen to him. But at the same time, it's you hear all of these stories in the news of all of these things that are happening to all of these people all across the country. And you're just afraid in the back of your mind, that could be me. Mm -hmm. That could be somebody I know. And it got to a point, I think, where I know I was scared in the back of my mind as we were hearing all of these things. Like, I have a little brother. I have a little brother who's doing all of these things. That boy who we're hearing about in the news could very well be somebody in my family. And with my parents thinking the same thing, it became a conversation that we needed to have. And that, I think, is kind of what set it off. So do you feel like your parents kind of were just neutral or didn't say very much about race when you were kids? Hmm. They did, um, but it was always a weird conversation with them. Really? Um, I remember the first time I ever talked about my parent with about race with my parents, I asked them what the KKK was. Mm-hmm. I was probably, I want to say 10 or 12. Mm-hmm. So it was, I was fairly old, but not quite. And I asked them what it was, and my mom kind of just laughed. And she said, go ask your father. Because she was so shocked that I had asked her about it. Really? Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure why, uh-huh. but I just remember that that was kind of the first the mm-hmm. first conversation we had about it. And then going forward from there, um, I remember there were a couple of times when we would be in school and my brother and I would get sent home with permission slips. Just my brother and I. Because the teacher wanted to know if we, our mother was okay with us talking about Martin Luther King Day. Are you kidding me? 100% This serious. is so weird. 100%. Can and I then, just tell you how weird that is? Oh, it gets worse. So they also asked her, I think we we're going to read a section of Tom Sawyer. Right. And they asked. But it was like the redacted version. Mm-hmm. So there was Tom Sawyer. There was like the Martin Luther King biography. There was a section about something having to do with slavery. They asked my mother about all of it. Are you serious? 100%. So how did they deal with sex education? <laughs> um, right? Yeah, exactly. that's like what the only time I remember ever having a permission slip was about sex ed. Yeah. Oddly enough, I skipped that with every school that I went to. A lot of transferring. I don't know. Um, but I remember it always being a thing where when it came to talking about anything having to do with black history, it was we need to contact Alexis's parents first. Oh, Jesus. That's so weird. Yeah. And so how did that make you feel? It's interesting because when I came to college, I started hearing this phrase called, like, the token black friend. And that, every time I hear that, when people start talking about, like, the token black friend or the one black person who can contribute, like, the African-American perspective to Mm -hmm. a conversation, that's what being in middle school felt like. That's what being in elementary school felt like. It was, here is this person who can potentially get offended by this history that happened. So we're going to make sure that they're okay with it so we can and, and feel weird and isolated from it so we can wake everybody up to the reality. Listeners, if you are in the position to ever teach anything, this is a bad strategy. And especially since because a history is fantastic for all people and also, I mean, what a strange kind of alienating experience then you have to history, which right. as I said before is awesome. So, having those experiences and then coming to college this must have been very, like, strange. It was. Okay. <laughs> it was. It was. It was weird. Um, and I think in a lot of ways I was scared going into some of my first classes yeah. because it's – it in all of my classes being the only – African-American student or one of very few African-American students, when we get to the conversation about here's what happened during the slave trade and 
somebody raises their hand to make a comment and they have to look at you to make sure that like what they're saying is okay with you and you're not going to come over and jump across the room because they said mm-hmm. something wrong. I remember my first couple of classes walking in the room and being scared to talk about conversations about race mm-hmm. because of the isolation that I would always feel. And it was, you know, I'm tired of being the token person who can contribute to one perspective on this issue. I'm tired of feeling like if we talk about slavery, I'm the voice of hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people from the 1800s who I've never even met, have no relation to, have I mean, have a lot in common with, but primarily the color of my skin. And so it was interesting because when I came to college and I saw so many other people who looked like me mm-hmm. taking classes with me, sitting there with me, sharing experiences with me, I was like, oh, okay, I'm not alone. This well, is this, cool. So this is fascinating because you are now on a campus that is trying to engage institutionally in a in a talk about slavery. Georgetown has uh, formed um, a a working group on on slavery and and memory and reconciliation. I'm in full disclosure. I'm a member of it, and a a school that is moving towards an African American studies major. And a lot of the critique of Georgetown is a lack of representation, mm-hmm. is a lack of resources. But from your perspective, this is if and I don't want to put words in your mouth. This seems a little corrective from a really like bizarre and poorly managed one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is surprising because you hear both sides of it. So like you said, Georgetown is very much in a moment right now where we're having very strong dialogues about Mm -hmm. these sorts of things. And you have people who fall into one side who are saying, you know, these are all of the steps that Georgetown needs to take in order to do better. How Mm -hmm. can we make Georgetown's representation of this community stronger? Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here on the flip side because I came from a very unique situation Mm -hmm. where I'm thinking... I I like your idea, but this is great for me. Like, I'm flourishing in this right now, and this situation is opening my eyes to so much. That's not to say that I think, oh, it's perfect, we can't change it. Obviously, an African-American studies major would be great, and there are a lot of Mm -hmm. things that we can talk about and good conversations that people have been having that I agree with. But at the same time, it's like, coming from where I come from, this is a lot. This this is opening so many doors to so many different conversations that I never thought I was going to be able to have. And so just the fact that the conversations are taking place, I'm happy as a clam. So what is it like now? Um, I think we met, you took my Sex, Love, and Race in American Life and Culture class. Did Mm -hmm. you take another one? No, it was just that one. Will I see you next year? I'm just kidding. But (laughs) if if there's room in your schedule. But so a class like that, what is the experience of a class like that now? Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. So I took that class, and I think that was a lot of fun because it contextualized and gave historical backing for a lot of things that we were talking about in a really interesting way. In that talking about, I mean, obviously the class was titled Text on Race in American Culture, and so talking a lot about miscegenation laws mm-hmm. and talking a lot about some of the institutional barriers that prevented, I guess, the advancement of different groups of people. It was interesting because I never thought about how institutional some of the things that kind of plague contemporary Mm -hmm. society are. And so I know we talked a lot. There was a segment in the class where we would talk about kind of just what's going on in the world right now. Mm -hmm. What are things that are currently happening? And we talked about the role of women and things like that. And it was just fascinating to hear the history behind some of those practices Mm -hmm. that have 
kind of subtly been oppressing people for long periods of time. And I think going forward, I'm taking a lot of classes that talk about similar things. And I just started a really good book called The New Jim Crow. Excellent book, folks. It will be on the (laughs) Tumblr homework section, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And it's just fascinating to, to read about the history behind a lot of those things. And I think to be honest with you, a lot of the classes I'm taking now mm-hmm. are because of the class I took with you. Because it's just it's just fascinating to me to me to see how we like the culture that we're brought up in and some of the challenges that we're having right now comes as a result of these subtle things that people did a long, long time ago mm-hmm. to keep people apart. Yeah. So So what do, so how is it like talking to your parents now about race? Hmm. So next time there's um, a blackout and there's no power. And we have to talk about race. And you guys have to talk to, be like, hey, guys, I'd like to talk to you about mass incarceration <laughs> and its roots in slavery. Oh, goodness. Hmm. I don't want to say that now it's more of a grown-up problem, but that's kind of what it feels like. Mm-hmm. In that when, so I, I remember when my brother came home for Christmas, he was showing us all of these pictures of him standing in the lines wearing all black and protesting with the people Mm -hmm. on campus. And it was like, we were having this conversation with my parents where we weren't talking about the face level thing of race, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. We weren't having a surface level conversation anymore. It was, this is why I feel the way I do Mm -hmm. about the movement that's happening right now. This is why I was standing there at the protests. Mm -hmm. This is why I feel threatened or why I feel scared or while I feel excited about what's going on in this country right now. And I think going forward for the next blackout, it'll be interesting to have a conversation with my parents about kind of how those things that we're reading about, those institutional structural things are impacting them and how they've kind of seen that Mm -hmm. being part of the older generation, but also being parents of the newer one. Well, let me ask you this. Do your parents tell you guys about what whatever it was like maybe when they first moved into your neighborhood or when they went to school. Oh, yeah. No, Mm -hmm. my dad has told us on multiple occasions that the neighborhood we live in when he was younger was the neighborhood that all of, like, the rich, white, Mm -hmm. air quote, like, managers of the factories lived. Mm. That neighborhood was where all of the people who were employing the minorities who were Mm -hmm. living a little bit farther out lived. And my mom always says that when my dad went, when she and my dad were house hunting, he wanted to buy that house because they wouldn't sell it to black people when he was a kid. Mm -hmm. They always dreamed about moving into that neighborhood. And so when they were going to raise a family, they had to live there. And so because my parents have kind of grew up and lived always in the same, I want to say like 15 mile radius, Mm -hmm. they've seen a lot of institutional Mm -hmm. racial changes. They've seen kind of back when Mm -hmm. the neighborhood that we lived in was an all white neighborhood. And they've kind of seen it diversify itself and so they can speak to a lot of those things which is good and so when you think about you know like the future or where you think this goes I think it's interesting that your brother is starting college in this time right and you're kind of slowly moving out of college I know don't feel too sad about it but um so what is it like to talk to your brother about participating in campus protests and your decision not to participate Mm -hmm. at Georgetown's campus yeah Ooh, it's interesting. Um, I think we have, my brother and I have always been different people. Mm -hmm. And I think with my brother, he sees this 
thing that's so exciting and so mm-hmm. new. It's like, how do I get involved? Mm-hmm. Tell me what I need to do. If people are going to stand in the cold and they're going to protest, mm-hmm. I'm going to stand in the cold and I'm going to protest. And I think I've always been a little bit more of the person who kind of just sits and tries to approach things a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And so I know when I go to my brother and I'm like, okay, well, what are you guys even protesting? I have no idea. I just want to get involved. It's mm-hmm. what the black people are doing. I'm doing mm-hmm. it. Okay, cool. But at the same time, I'm thinking to myself with regards to Georgetown's protests, it's I'm thinking about it more so in, okay, standing out there and demonstrating solidarity, that's awesome. That's great. People should do that. I know, I know we need people to do that. But at the same time, I'm always thinking more so in the mindset of, well, how do we go about changing things through the institution? Mm-hmm. What conversations do we need to have with which people about certain things mm-hmm. in order to get change to come? And I know sometimes that you kind of do need to show a show of strength. And there are moments in which in order to even get that conversation started, you need to do something. You Maybe mm-hmm. you need to protest, things like that. But when it comes to getting involved in some of these that kind of have been happening on this campus, I think part of the reason I haven't been getting involved is just because I think there are other ways that conversations about things can be had Mm -hmm. and certain conversations that you shut down when you engage in certain types of protests. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about the kind of bigger picture about where you see protests and activism and conversations about race going. Mm-hmm. If you had a crystal ball, where do you think where do you think we end? Ooh, that's tough. Going back to the, the new Jim Crow mm-hmm. because I'm loving it so much. It's funny because uh, the author says it'd be naive to say that the election of President Obama is where this conversation stops. Mm-hmm. And I think that being said, when you when you when you asked me that question, it was kind of my first thought. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, well, Obama was elected, so mm-hmm. you would think that everything was fine. And she's right. It's it's naive to say that electing an African-American president and getting African-Americans involved in a lot of high-level mm-hmm. positions, which would have been absolutely unheard of 50, 60 years ago, that's really not where we end. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with that, it's more so about how do we go back to all of those institutional things that oppress people? Mm-hmm. How do we go back to all of those institutional things that impact large populations of minorities, regardless of whether or not that's African-American, that can be women, that can be mm-hmm. Hispanics, it can be whoever. How do we get a conversation where we can change those things? And how do we isolate those things to where people realize that they're actually causing problems? And where do you see yourself in that? I see you as, like, a leader because <laughs> you're so smart and you're so thoughtful and I think you're inquisitive. Oh, thank you. But um, that's my opinion. Where do you see yourself in all of this? So I've always wanted to go to law school. Okay. Um, and, of course, when you tell people you want to go to law school, their first question is, well, what type of law do you want to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and for a while I was saying corporate. I, I don't know why. Um, but I've always, in the back of my mind, thought I wanted to do constitutional civil rights. Mm-hmm. And I think... When you look at the history of how those types of things, constitutional questions and challenges to civil rights and how those things have kind of gone through the court system, it's very much one of those things where when the Supreme Court or the district courts are making decisions, that's very much contingent upon the moment the country is in Mm -hmm. and where politics is kind of drawing the lines on what how people feel about things. And so I think by virtue of the fact that we're having so many conversations right now about 
police brutality, about mass incarceration, about all of the things that are affecting people that are legal but not right, Mm -hmm. if we keep having these conversations as a country and as a group of young people, we keep getting individuals to think about things like that, Mm -hmm. to think about how the laws and how the way that people act are impacting others, going forward, that'll set the stage for all of these different changes to be made. That's how we fix the institution. And that's what I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of taking all of those institutional things that are that are wrong, that are bad, that are oppressive, but not in an overt way, and making those better. I love it. So last question that I've asked all of our guests is, if there's one thing about you that you wish every professor would just know, um, you know, that you don't get to talk about sometimes or you don't talk about in class, but for all the professors listening, what would you say? Ooh. Oh, that's tough. I think I would say for every professor, it's nice to know how people identify themselves. And I say that because primarily with regards to this topic, I, for example, if you were to ask me how I identify myself, the first thing I would probably tell you is that I'm an African-American female. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I think when you look at me, you see that, but you don't necessarily see the two things together. Mm -hmm. And so when we're having conversations specifically about race or we're having conversations about gender, there's a narrative in there that gets lost if you limit it to two things. And granted, like we said earlier, professors shouldn't just be looking like, oh, black people, they can contribute to that, per- <laughs> that perception. Yes. But at the same time, when you kind of have an understanding, I think, of how students identify themselves, it, it, it grants opportunities for a richer conversation. Because I think when you get to know students on a level of how they identify themselves, you can have conversations like this where you talk about, you know, Growing up, what what did this mean to you? How did you get to this point in your life where we're sitting here having a conversation about this book or this text or whatever it is we're talking about in class? And how does that impact you and your identity? Because at the end of these four years, I want to be able to have developed myself as a person. And if I can sit in a class and have a professor ask me, well, who are you? What do you think? How do you feel? And how does this text relate to that? That'll allow me the opportunity to grow, which I think at the end of the day is part of the reason I came to college in the first place. I wanted to discover myself. I wanted to learn new things about myself. I wanted to learn new things about the world, but I also wanted to develop myself in the process. And so I think professors should kind of just take that additional time when you're going through a book, when you're learning something, even if it's a math problem. Just ask your student, who are you? And how does this relate to that? Because I think that's very important. Great advice. Thank you so much, Alexis. You're welcome. That was great. Thank you for visiting Office Hours. Office Hours, a podcast, is a production of Dr. Marsha Chatlin and Alex Tyson. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers. Join us on social media, on Twitter, at Office Hours Pod, and on Instagram, on Office Hours Podcast.